Right, I think it, well, I mean, we'll talk through it. We fortunately have a, a smaller, shorter chapter this time around, so we'll be able to get through this in time. Ah, and as I do every week, a couple housekeeping items. Uh, we do have talks going all week. Please check the uh, calendar up at the top, rolling calendar. Uh, we have talks on Simondon. Uh, we have our literary, literary group. Uh, Jack has been uh, running. Uh, we also have our sister servers, brother servers, uh, whatever gender servers we want to pick, uh, that Kent and a few others have been running alongside um, Zizek or generalized continental philosophy or all kinds of stuff. Please check those links out. Uh, they are uh, a bit scattered throughout, but we have uh, links to other servers. Uh, big news for us this week, there isn't much. Uh, we are still aiming at uh, zine launch in a few weeks. If you have content, please don't hesitate to drop it in the zine submissions text channel. Uh, we'll happily include whatever you uh, toss in there. And uh, that's, I think, about it. Is there any other big announcements this week, guys? Just wanted to give two quick um points uh first we did have our first movie night last week and uh, we hope to perhaps continue doing that uh we watched eraserhead from david lunch and it was well attended and uh, well enjoyed and then uh secondly um literature will be continuing to read uh william blate's the marriage of heaven and hell for next saturday so join us for the fun right. um as always uh, as we go through this we are through <coughs> uh the pages as we go but do not hesitate to type stuff in the discussion chat the live discussion chat text channel right above this channel uh i won't be in there but do star things that are good give things a notice that are positive little star makes it float to the top of the server which is always good for everyone to see kind of what we've got contributing but for now uh we are going to move on to chapter two section six a recapitulation of three syntheses uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a read up front and start the first paragraph off, and we will make our way through. Uh, I've read through this chapter uh, this morning. Uh, I read through it a little bit last night before my lights went out. Uh, and it is going to be, I think, uh, a lot of good discussion, but uh, there's there's a lot of stupefying Oedipus, inexhaustible and ever-present. We are told that the father died over a period of thousands of years, well, well, and that the internalization corresponding to the paternal image was produced during the Paleolithic right up until the start of the Neolithic, approximately 8,000 years ago. One analyzes historically, or one doesn't, but honestly, as to the death of the father, news doesn't travel very fast. It would be a mistake to embark Nietzsche on that particular voyage through history. For Nietzsche is not the kind to ruminate over the death of the father and spend all his Paleolithic period internalizing him. On the contrary, Nietzsche is exceedingly tired of all these stories revolving around the death of the father, the death of God, and wants to put an end to the interminable discourses <clears throat> on the na this nature. Discourses already in vogue in his Hegelian epoch. Alas, he was wrong. The discourses have continued, but Nietzsche wanted us finally to pass on to serious things. He gives us 12 or 13 versions of the death of God, for good measure and to be done with it, so as to render the event comical. As he explains that, strictly speaking, this event has no importance whatever, that it merely concerns the latest pope, 
God dead or not dead, the father dead or not dead, it amounts to the same thing. Since the same psychic repression, well, I won't bother trying to pronounce that, and the same social repression continue unabated. Here in the name of God or a living father, there in the name of man or the dead father. And I mean, I Pass it over to Varun, who I'm, I just know is going to be talking about a lot in this chapter. <laughs> I mean, I, I think already what they're starting to talk about here is, um, which, which they, you know, they, this is sort of like what they've been doing throughout the whole book, and it even comes from Toulouse's earlier works and like difference in repetition and log- logic of sense, is this idea of um, representation and how their cons, you know, one of the main things that maybe might not have been answered so clearly throughout the previous chapters is why the hell do we need desiring machines or um, why does it have to be such a complex uh, process of the creation of subjectivity, right? Why do we need to start from such a almost obscure and arcane place to begin with that of desire for the losing lottery? Um, so one of the reasons why that is is because they want to escape uh, the clutches of representation, and uh, I, I guess this is also uh, you could almost make like the whole cybernetics argument for Blues and Quadri. But um, more importantly, what's uh, what's happening here by escaping representation is that they're, they've also they're also going to say later in this chapter pretty clearly that it's uh, representationality that causes things like Oedipal, Oedipalized desire or lack or desire to be trapped into certain circumstances where, you know, desire, desire, so desire is its own repression. And so with this idea of, uh, I, I think at least my interpretation of this, where they talk about God and uh, Nietzsche's ideas, that essentially what they're talking about here is representation. Do we have any Nietzsche uh, experts here in the crowd who could maybe give us a little bit more insight into specifically what they're talking about? Because they bring up Nietzsche a lot in the rest of this section, and uh, I've only read a handful of his works. So I would hardly call myself an expert. Uh, I won't purport to be an expert, but if you've read Nietzsche's, um, he's got a short work about the, uh, the madman going to the market and announcing the death of God. And so like the what happens is he, the, the madman will go to the market, throw down his lantern uh, when he realizes he can't get through to anybody about the death of God because he's come before his time, or rather before their time. So in that sense, you kind of see what they're getting at. And that um, I think they're right. Nietzsche is calling to get beyond all this. Um would also say I, I think they're if I'm not mistaken uh, Hegel is the one that comes up with the, the phrase the death of God so what they're saying does make sense to me I, I do think Nietzsche is trying to get beyond this whole discourse um, and that last line seems to speak to that where they they write that um, God dead or not dead the father dead or not dead it amounts to the same thing since the same psychic repression and the same social repression continue unabated. Here in the name of God or a living father, there in the name of man or the dead father. So comparing the death of God to, the, in a way, the death of uh, Oedipus, or rather the death of Oedipus's father. Or the mythology of following God and the mythology and the repression that comes from following God is similar to that of 
Oedipus and it's continues. It doesn't matter whether or not it's dead or not. We still have to repair. I think, I think regarding the Hegelian part is that, you know, if, if you really want to contrast these thinkers, right. Hegel was the great thinker of the labor of the negative, right. Even Zizek, when he wrote a book about, I don't want to bring him too much. He wrote a book about Hegel. He's, he's, he's talked to people, the t- it's negativity is in the title. And uh, Nietzsche was the great thinker of affirmation, right. So already uh, Nietzsche was, I mean, in a way, Nietzsche is like, you know, like, let's, let's, let's create something rather than focusing on what happened. Let's think about creating something. And uh, um, I mean, there's almost a little bit later in the paragraph, in the next paragraph, there's almost something for your Bakian, right? That despite the fact they've, they've just replaced God with man. And uh, um, so, so, so that's why, that's why I'm coming back to the idea of representation with God. Gotcha. Well, do you want to uh, give a read to the next paragraph? Uh, sure. Yeah. Sorry, I might sound a bit positive. Nietzsche says that what is important is not the news that God is dead, but the time the news takes to bear fruit. Here, the psychoanalyst perks up his ears, believing that he has heard, heard a familiar chord. It is well known that the unconscious takes a lot of time to digest a bit of news. One can even quote some text of Freud on the unconscious being ignorant of time, conserving its objects like an Egyptian tome. But that is not all what Nietzsche is saying. He does not mean that the death of God spends a long time plodding around in the unconscious. He means that what takes so long to coming into consciousness is the news that the death of God makes no difference to the unconscious. The fruits of the news are not the consequences brought about from the death of God, but this other news that the death of God is, is of no consequence. In other terms, that God and the Father never existed. Or if they did, it was so long ago, perhaps during the Paleolithic. All they did was kill a dead God from a time immemorial. Actually, it has some trouble with that phrase. I didn't know what it meant, but it basically just means a time that's long forgotten. The fruits of the news of the death of God do away with its flower of his death, as well as the bud of his life. For alive or dead, it is still a question of belief. The element of belief has not been abandoned. The announcement of the father's death constitutes a last belief, a belief by virtue of non-belief, about which Nietzsche says, this violence always manifests the need for a belief, for a prop, for a structure, Oedipus as structure. This is definitely a paragraph that gave me trouble. I read it over several times while I was reading this. and well, I don't know, even now I'm not sure I totally get it all, but like the first half of it about the news not making a difference to the unconscious, that kind of makes sense to me. And also I feel like I don't know how to state that in a clearer way than they stated it themselves. Um, yeah. uh, that, that, I, I think we just have to go with that. That with that phrase, because um, when they talk, when they say specifically in the last line, Oedipus as structure, I'll just read the whole line again. Nietzsche says the violence always manifests the need for a belief or a prop for a structure, Oedipus as structure, right? So I, I think they're pretty explicitly talking about representationality right here. I don't want to keep using that phrase. So that, that, that's how it feels to me too, Varun. Uh, the the sort of corollary in my mind that first popped in is the way we talk of the founding fathers uh, of America. You often hear people invoke their names. Uh, we know that they're dead. And so it, we, it's, it's much more about kind of what they represent, what they stand for when you invoke such a thing. It doesn't matter alive or dead. And what he's talking about here is 
Nietzsche wanted to get beyond the idea of it's not so much that God is dead, sort of that God didn't never really mattered. And so it's not so much that we're in a place, uh, uh, Zizek wrote an entire book called The Puppet and the Dwarf, which is an excellent sort of critique of uh, the death of God and what it means for Christianity. Highly recommended uh, if you haven't. But uh, this feels similar to that kind of mentality where we're talking about uh, the power that the myth has, even if we're talking about God having died, the implication then is that actually God existed and God through it, and now we're living in a post-God world. And instead, what they're saying, Nietzsche, and I believe what they're also trying to say in this chapter is, no, no, no none of that matters. Put it behind us. All of that shit's behind us. We're in a new place now where it's not so much that God is dead, it's that it doesn't matter. It's God is inconsequential. Right. And it's always it's always still in the background, right? It's always still there somewhere in the mind. And, uh, you know, I think one way to think about it is, you know, the pre-Oedipal, post-Oedipal and exo-Oedipal stages, right? Despite everything, Oedipal is always somewhere in the background. And it's always, uh, it's always, it always falls back upon it some way, in some way or manner. And it's, uh, that, that's, that's another way to think of the representation they talk about here. Um, I, I think we should uh, just take a moment to, uh, you know, kind of remember that, um, you know, uh, first came formalism that was represented in, uh, in Russian formalism. And, um, and then, and then uh, structuralism came along with Levi-Strauss and the analysis of myth and, and the idea that you could find a structure underlying the uh, storyline of the myth. Um, and then the, um, and then Derrida, uh, he critiqued structuralism by saying, well, formalism had a unity and, and structuralism itself has a unity. And these unities, um, uh, basically he was saying that they don't, um, uh, hold together, um, as we might think they do. And so, um. And so, you know, deconstructionism is basically the idea that if you push a structure just a little bit too far, it'll collapse on its own. And, yeah. uh, and, and so uh, Derrida demonstrated that with Husserl, and then, and then I think he demonstrated that with structuralism. So, so this thing of uh, uh, recognizing Oedipus not as a form, but as a structure, um, is kind of an important move, but 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 then we're saying, you know, what's being said here is even the structure does not hold together as a unit. Well, and it and it also sounds like what they're saying is the structure itself exists, and so by having non-belief in this structure, you're actually placing yourself within the structure uh, as well. Um, it's kind of like a high school atheism. I went to a very very religious high school. And my atheism was not so much a non-belief in God, but an anti-belief in God uh, as a response sort of to the structure that Christianity, Mormonism, and Catholicism, all of those that were in the area, uh, really gave me. And so my atheism existed sort of as a response to that, but still deeply within the structure of the overall belief system. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was still in the background, right? Yes, it never went away. It's... Uh, uh, and it, it took a lot of 
I, I would say maturity, but I'm talking about myself. So it's probably not the case, but like a little bit of growth where it's like, Oh no, wait, it's, it's not disbelief. It's, it's non-belief. It's not anti-belief. It's non-belief. And that's, I think what they're talking about here, a belief by virtue of non-belief. Uh, this violence always manifests the need for a belief for a prop, for a structure, uh, which I really like that line. If I could uh, jump in too, I, I think we want to pay attention because um, I think we're making some very excellent points. But when we say it's in the background, I think the trick is it's in the background in a more conscious way because they write that the, um, right, so we're talking about uh, the way repression deals with the, uh, the death of God or the death of the Father, um, which is where they leave that uh, preceding paragraph. What I see them doing in the second one is expanding on that. And so, like, right, if the death of the father doesn't matter for the unconscious, which I think is probably true, right, this takes us back to even when they say ideology is a pre-conscious thing. Uh, if the death of the father and the death of God don't really matter for the unconscious, right, so that means desiring machines, the three syntheses are still occurring, uh, as though none of that really, you know, mattered. Then what we have instead is uh, is what I see at the end, with which is more of like when we say it's in the background. I think what they mean is it's part of the sort of conscious structure of things, and so um, it reminds me of uh, Foucault talks about how man is the the glistening foam on top of all these different structures. In the same way, it looks like we kind of place ourselves within Oedipus that way. I, I, I don't want to use so much jargon, but I think they're also harkening back to the idea that Oedipus is a body without organs. Isn't Oedipus recorded on the body without organs? I mean, that's what I mean, right? He he acts in that way. It, it acts in that way, where it's uh, it's uh, it always seems to cause I cause. Yeah, and it can be part of you know all three syntheses, right? Uh, the consuming consumption. You could have the Oedipal effect, but I think um, right. when, he, when he makes the move, when they make the move to say, where it looks like they're saying it's a problem to say this is a question of belief and non-belief. Because that's um, like Brooks is saying, that keeps you within the, you know, you're defining yourself in terms of the very structure you're trying not to define yourselves in. And discovering a third structure, or even simply realizing that the structure doesn't matter, is an exceptionally difficult thing to do mentally. Uh, especially when you are talking, and we are talking about something that's deeply recorded on the body without organs. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. The, the final point, uh, at least for my part, I think that's why they write, the death of God really only matters for the Pope, right? It's a structural problem. It's not a, a problem for um, the unconscious, although it could be a problem for personal or social repression. I, I do like that line, like concerns the Pope. Um, I'm going to jump through and we're going to start, let's uh, get through the next paragraph, uh, because I think... Uh, Again, yeah, a lot of the things we're talking about come up in later parts of this section for sure. Yeah, uh, it's such a good, such a good. I'm, I'm starting to grasp more. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> Ingalls paid homage to the genius of Beethoven. 
for having recognized in myth the figures of a maternal and a paternal law, their struggles and their relationships. But Ingalls slips in a reproach that changes everything. It really seems as if Pekofen believes all this, that he believes in myths, in the Furies, Apollo and Athena. The same reproach applies even better to psychoanalysts. It would seem they believe in all of this, in myth, in Oedipus, castration. They reply, the question is not one of knowing whether we believe in this, but whether or not the unconscious itself believes in it. But what is this unconscious when reduced to the state of belief? Who injects it with belief? Psychoanalysis cannot become a rigorous discipline unless it accepts putting belief in parentheses, which is to say a materialist reduction of Oedipus as an ideological form. It is not a matter of saying that Oedipus is a false belief, but rather that belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production. That is why seers are the least believing of men. When we relate desire to Oedipus, we are condemned to ignore the productive nature of desire. We condemn desire to vague dreams or imaginations that are merely conscious expressions of it. We relate it to independent existences, the father, the mother, the begetters, that do not yet comprise their elements as internal elements of desire. The question of the father is like that of God. <clears throat> Born of an abstraction, it assumes the link to be already broken between man and nature, man and the world, so that man must be produced as man by something exterior to nature and to man. On this point, Nietzsche makes a remark completely akin to those of Marx or Engels. We now laugh when we find man and world placed beside one another, separated by the sublime presumption of the little word and. I, I think, uh, you know, later when they start talking about how, do, in this chapter, how desiring machines are non-representational, what they're doing in the first part of this passage is essentially describing rep what rep what a representational uh, nature thing looks like. So, uh, what it ontologically looks like. So they talk about belief, belief as an example, right? To think in a representation is to have some sort of belief, or maybe even uh, idealistic teleology. But um, it's it's almost platonic the way Oedipus works and the way they talk about it here. And Oedipus is an ideological form, right? That there's some idealistic way. And I think it's, it, 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 it echoes so beautifully with that line when we ask, when we ask about meaning, right? The psychoanalyst plays, plays a her hermeneutics game. He's asking, uh, he's, he's looking through the dream and he's asking, how does this mean that in relation to this representation of this tragedy that I the tragedy of Oedipus, right? It, how does this, what, what are the hermeneutics when, when it comes with regard to Oedipus? And uh, that's the game of belief rather than the game of production. And there, what they say there is that the productive nature of desire, we condemn desire to vague dreams or imaginations that are merely conscious expressions of it. We relate it to independent experiences, the father, the mother, the mother that do not compromise these elements, the internal elements of desire, right? So it's essentially them saying that it's, it's, it's restricted in that sort of representational schema. Um. So there's a sentence in here. I wanted uh, two sentences next to each other. Uh, rather that belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production. That is why seers are the least believing of men. Now, the second sentence rings true with me. The first sentence I don't understand uh, as a thing. Uh, belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production. 
Um, I, I think what they're talking about by belief here is what they mean by meaning or rather um, the sense of uh, trying, trying to understand things of uh, what it is rather than what it does. I think that's the key word because that's drawing on a lot of their cybernetics, right? You're asking what it is. They talk about this later, a little bit later, just in the next page. But instead of asking what it does, you ask what it is. And when you're asking what it is, you're asking a question of meaning and belief. And in doing so, what you're doing is you're you're not getting down to the true nature or the true ontological characteristics of uh, how things actually work. And I think the loose sets a lot of this up really brilliantly in difference and repetition. Um, and when, when it comes to that idea of belief is then you're stuck in this representation because, you know, you don't consider the endless flux of things by asking a question of what something is. By asking what it does, you can account for its becoming. That's how desiring production. Works. <laughs> so yeah, the comment like then it, that follows uh, that seers are the least believing of men, sort of the, I almost want to say it's a trope. It's in, uh, yeah, it's like a, my mind pops to American dad of the, the preacher that they have. Stan goes to him and says, Father, what do you do when your best friend doesn't believe in God? And he turns to Stan and goes, Well, I'm not sure I'd call us best friends. <laughs> Which is a good line, but it's uh, sort of that old trope of the preacher who doesn't really believe the shit he's saying. And that feels like it's in line with that. Yeah, I'm thinking also back even more to like, you know, Greek Oracle kind of just, yeah, yeah, like from Delphi, like Jack says. Uh, could I just say that, uh, you know, the idea that the seers are the most, uh, are the least believing of men, well, that's because they have certain. And, uh, and so, you know, one of the things this, this is alluding to is the divided line of Plato. <clears throat> In the divided line of Plato, you know, there's two parts. There's uh, ratio and doxa. And doxa is belief. Uh, it's either opinion or appearance. So, so in the doxa, you're just seeing appearances, but you don't really know uh, whether those appearances you know, there's anything there or not. Now the seers are certain, but 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 then there's this middle category, which is the ratio, where you try to use reason to uh, to work out what what's real, what's not real in the appearance. And so there's 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 something between the seers and the believers, which is uh, rationality, which is you know, the core of the Western worldview is the idea of, uh, of rationality. Well, and, and, they, and they dive really quick in at the end of the paragraph to the sort of the presumption that comes with the representation of God. As soon as we invoke God and he becomes a thing, we've immediately basically placed ourselves as separate from the world, man and world. Man is not part of it. Man is sort of naturally something separated. Uh, and that, that sort of grand presumption doesn't go away, especially if you say God is dead, that presumption still resumes. Is, is that fair? That, um, am I reading that right? You know, I, I, I think, I, I'm going to assume yes. Silence means yes uh, to me. I, I think you're... That's accurate to me. I was struggling with that too, so... It's just... It's, it's, it's right or wrong, but... Yeah. It's a tough ending to the paragraph, and so I just wanted, before we move on, because they immediately go into coextensiveness, and that is literally about man and world, man v. world, whatever, however you want to phrase it. I mean, I, 
I was going to say, I think you're definitely onto it. Um, I think the seer is supposed to represent just like the schizophrenic in the chapter one, section one, where the schizophrenic on the walk is constantly plugging themselves into things. Uh, in the same way, I think a seer is similar there. Um, what kind of helps me read this section is the the beginning of it, where Angles is criticizing uh, Bakufen for not just discussing the mythologies, but accepting the maternalistic and paternalistic laws that come with them. So, right, like it's not, I, I think it's not just a question of like uh, the problem of representation. I think it's also um, a problem of what comes with accepting uh, those ideas, right? How does the repression, right? Because if the unconscious isn't a question of does it or does it not believe, but rather if the unconscious is indifferent, right, then in some sense, it seems to be a question of how how one uses these, uh, shall we say, addendums with the um, with the representation uh, to sort of uh, at least somewhat consciously um, repress what the seer would otherwise be a part of to repress the things they're plugging themselves into. Well, and they and they talk about um, with God and world as the example Nietzsche gives. The way I'm reading this sort of earlier parts of the section when we relate when we relate desire to oedipus which is sort of that same uh the moment we've talked and oedipus has been invoked the representation of it creates the structure that is going to push us into believing that these representations of mother father are the things that affect us that's what drives us and creates desire that becomes sort of a sort of base level understanding of what creates desire whereas sorry go ahead I mean, like, I, I, I think I might be repeating myself here, but when they ask, when you, when you, when you're asking what something is, but not considering the process of how something is, what you're doing is you're creating an almost idealistic category, and that that's almost my understanding of what they mean by the question of belief, and when you've created this idealistic representation, it, it it doesn't it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not if you believe you're being idealistic or you be, believe it's true or not as long as you're still asking that question or you're still connected in the question in such a way that's a paralogism. I mean, they're harkening off a lot of Kant and a no, they, they, they do that. I think I think calling it a vague ideology is like uh, uh, not ideology. Sorry, um, uh, God, you just said it. Um, it we condemn desire to vague dreams or imaginations. Uh, I think that's that's what you're talking about and referring to, right? right. It's, it's that uh, desire has been molded in such a specific way by these, but by by the paralogism, right? The three paralogisms which they uh, which we covered earlier and which they're going to cover again is that these three representations that get placed upon upon us from that come from outside, right? When they get placed upon us, uh, it becomes idealistic and it becomes it. And then we get things like, you know, Oedipus or things like lack. Idealistic. Idealistic was the word I was. Uh, who wants to read the next paragraph? Because I think <clears throat> coextensiveness is going to be uh, worth diving into. I'll take it. Do oh, you want Jack, to, you want to take the next? No, you do, Jack. All right. Coextensiveness is another matter entirely. The coextension of man and nature, a circular movement 
by which the unconscious, always remaining subject, produces and reproduces itself. The unconscious does not follow the paths of a generation progressing or regressing from one body to another, your father, your father's father, and so on. The organized body is the object of reproduction by generation. It is not its subject. The sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself, which holds to the circular form of production. Sexuality is not a means in service of generation, rather, the generation of bodies is in the server service of sexuality as an auto-production of the unconscious. <clears throat> sexuality does not represent a premium from the ego in exchange for its subordination to the process of generation. On the contrary, generation is the ego's solace, its prolongation, the passage from one body to another through which the unconscious does no more than reproduce itself in itself. Indeed, in this sense, we must say, the unconscious has always been an orphan, that is, it has engendered itself in the identity of nature and man, of the world and man. The question of the Father, the question of God, is what has become impossible, a matter of indifference. So true is it that to affirm or deny such a being amounts to the same thing, or to live it or cure I think we lost Jack real quick there. Yeah, did, 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 was it just me or? No, no. I think I think all of us lost Jack there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the paragraph out and we'll do this guy. I believe you left off at uh, the the question of the Father, the question of God, is what has become impossible, a matter of indifference. So true is it that to affirm or deny such a being amounts to the same thing, or to live it or kill it one in the same misconception concerning the nature of the unconscious. Uh, I, I have I, a lot I, of questions here, but I'll, I would love some analysis first. <laughs> I'd just like to recap one point uh, so that, you know, when they, when they talk about the Cartesian ego being schizo by nature and stuff like that, what, what they're talking, I mean, I think they're again coming there. I just want to repeat the idea of the distinction between part objects and global objects. Right. Uh, Part of what desiring production entails is that there's an autonomous, there's an automatic process. Sorry, not autonomous, but automatic process that's happening in the background of constrained subjectivity. And you know, we often mis misunderstand subjectivity for being controlling ourselves rather than it's our desire that's being controlling us. And uh, um, you know, we are being self-produced by it. And that's the process that's forgotten by the whole object, by the global object, or the schema, the representation of Oedipus, call it what you will. And uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to uh, recap that in case somebody, some, somebody, because I think that's very relevant to what they're talking about here. So I, I'm going to ask about one sentence that I feel like has so much implied in it. <laughs> The sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself, which holds to the circular form of production. Uh, okay. I mean, okay. What, the thing about the three syntheses, right? They, they, and I think they use the word so specifically here. I think that this is, again, coming back to their Kantianism. And it kind of made me happy uh, reading this because it, 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 it proved a lot of my assumptions when I first started <laughs> right? 
that essentially the, the way the syntheses work is by nature, they're transcendental. That is to say what, what allows the unconscious to be something is that uh, the syntheses are the conditions that allow the unconscious to work and they're happening unconsciously itself. Right. And so, uh, it's, it's through these, it's, it, that's why they call it transcendental unconscious. It's, it's, it's only, it's, it's only because of the, 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 these syntheses are the conditions which allow subjectivity. These syntheses are the conditions that allow, um, things to happen essentially. Dog's in the house. I think, let me go close the door. Hello? Hi. Oh, okay. Still here. Maybe, maybe we lost Brooks. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll just go on then. <laughs> so again, I would so the, un, they define the unconscious as transcendental because it's the, the syntheses are the conditions which allow, um, which allow uh, things to happen, essentially. So, so there's a uh, commentary by a, a guy, I think his name is uh, Levy Bryant, I think his name is, uh, uh, called uh, Givenness and Difference, I believe. But anyway, uh, he makes the point that in uh, Difference and Repetition, uh, what uh, Deleuze is doing is he is... Uh, doing another Copernican revolution. But in the new Copernican revolution, it's turning away from the transcendental subject as organizing thing to the unconscious as organizing. And I think that's what we're seeing in this paragraph playing out is his interpretation of the lose uh, seems to be what's happening here at the way Perun said. I think what kind of helps too is the sentence, the organized body is the object of reproduction by generation. It is not its subject. So there's a distinction being made too by um, uh, regarding object and subject. Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, one key thing that I, uh, one key word that I like to describe this process would be flux, right? Uh, Deleuze was a great thinker of becoming rather than being. And uh, uh, by flux, this means that the unconscious is, you know, it's it's nomadic. It's always changing. It's it's always it's going around in circles again and again and again. It's, uh, it has uh, flows of desire that are being produced. It's being recorded and then it's being consumed. And then the process will start all over and over again, right? And uh, that's essentially what's the... Uh, what they're talking about here is that when you create the representation or this maybe it's like God, for example, it's uh, this entire thing has been distorted. So like if the unconscious is the uh, subject of reproduction, what does that mean distinctly from being the object of reproduction? It's the, it is the, it is the reproducer, right? Uh, so, the organized body is the object of reproduction by generation. It is not its subject. 
They go on, the sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself, which holds the circular form of production. So what I take that to mean is um, the unconscious is the only subject of reproduction. And that is part of the circular form of production, as opposed to like trying to, um, as opposed to making the body, the, uh, the, you see here, yep. As opposed to making the body the subject rather than the object. So this is changing the way we understand sexuality and reproduction, right? And, um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a shift away from, um, I think, from sexuality understood in terms of biological reproduction. Mm. I, mean, I think it makes sense within their framework of desiring production, right? If that is basically their conception of the unconscious, then, uh, or not conception, whatever, non-representative word you want to use, but like, um, right, so that's the down there is the source of all reproduction, all production of production. And uh, the way we represent that in terms of bodies, these physical forms uh, reproducing with you know, genetic codes and all that. Uh, so then what does that mean for that to be the object? Is it a sort of a, a telos there or what? Not quite. It's that the unconscious reproduces itself instead of the body reproducing itself. So one way you can understand sets and sexuality is that it's um, a body making a body. What I see them saying here is it's not so privileged for the ego or the body. Uh, rather, it's it's a it's the unconscious reproducing itself, which is to say more. Um, perhaps a little bit more clearly, it's the three syntheses in the process of production uh, reproducing itself rather than the, the body reproducing itself. Yeah, I mean, I, you used the example circular. Now, if you go like really, if you, if you really wanted to like fine comb that and go on the microscopic level, it might not be the best example, but I think for what they're describing here and looking at, from, at it from a distance, I, I, I think it does work. Let's just say it's, it's circular. And it's 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 the process that's constantly re-engendering itself, right? It's 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 a, it's automatic happening on its own, constantly in flux, constantly becoming, and it's constantly taking in the excess that comes in, and it's reworking that excess excess like a factory worker. And uh, uh, I, I think that's that's their way of, you know, they you remember the old quotes from Arto, right? I I got no Papa Mummy. That's essentially what they mean by the unconscious is it's producing itself. Uh, I'd just like to remember for briefly what, what Kant said, which was that, you know, you have this transcendental ego and, um, you know, there's intuition of space time and then there's the categories and the categories a priori organize um, experience to give, give the possibility of seeing causality. Um, and, and so if, 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 uh, Levy Bryant is right, and we're doing another Copernican revolution away from the transcendental ego to the unconscious, then the, the unconscious is, is doing all of this organizing and we're not even aware of it. That's why it's passive synthesis. 
We're not, we're just yeah. given stuff that has been synthesized by the unconscious. And then we, we work with what's been given the unconscious. The, the ego, the ego is, uh, you know, they're saying that the, the transcendental ego is just a supplement that's added on afterward. Yeah, I think a lot of Deleuze's argumentation styles throughout his books are rooted directly in transcendental deductions and stuff like that. So even the words like uh, uh, syllogisms and paralogisms, those are very Kantian, right? And uh, uh, they, they, they'll start talking about this in like the next couple paragraphs. Even. <laughs> I mean, even in difference and repetition, they, the way that he argues about the syntheses of time, that's again Kantian. I mean, not Kantian. In, in, in terms of concept, but Kantian in terms of style. Speaking of, uh, does anyone want to drop to the next paragraph? I'll happily take it. But psychoanalysts are bent on producing man abstractly, that is to say, ideologically, for culture. It is Oedipus who produces man in this fashion and who gives a structure to the false movement of infinite progression and regression. Your father, and your father's father, a snowball gathering speed as it moves from Oedipus, all the way to the father of the primal horde, to God and the Paleolithic Age. It is Oedipus who makes us man, for better or for worse, say those who would make fools of us all. The tone may vary, but the message remains basically the same. You will not escape Oedipus. Your sole choice is between the neurotic outlet and the non-neurotic outlet. The tone may be that of the scandalized psychoanalyst. The psychoanalyst is cop. Those who do not bow to the imperialism of Oedipus are dangerous deviants, leftists who ought to be handed over to social and police repression. They talk too much and are lacking in analogy. Dr. Gerard Mendel, that lacking in analogy, which I think is a phrase I want in the future. Um, what kind of disquieting play on words is it that can make the analyst a promoter of anality? No, no, I don't want to use that phrase anymore. Or there is a psychoanalyst as priest, the pious psychoanalyst, who is forever chanting the incurable insufficiency of being. Don't you see that Oedipus saves us from Oedipus? It is our agony, but also our ecstasy, depending on whether we live it neurotically or live its structure. It is the mother of the holy faith, J.M. Poyer. Or the techno-psychoanalyst, the reform psychoanalyst obsessed with the triangle who wraps the splendid gifts of civilization in Oedipus, identity, manic depression, and liberty in an infinite progression. Through Oedipus, the individual learns to live the triangular situation, the token of his identity, and at the same time he discovers, sometime in a depressive mode, sometime in a mode of exaltation, his fundamental alienation, his irredeemable Irre irremediable, irremediable solitude. The price of his liberty. The basic structure of the Oedipal apparatus may not only be generalized in time so as to account for all the triangular experiences of the child and his parents, it must be generalized in space to include those triangular relations other than the parent-child relations. It's a lot of citations in that section. One thing that jumps out to me um, in this section, too, is it seems to be getting at, like, uh, Oedipus might not actually be... So, like, the typical psychoanalytical point of view is Oedipus is something unconscious. But it sounds like what they're getting at, too, here is um, it's not really a question of the unconscious, right? It's it's a conscious structure, an apparatus, rather than something... Um, 
something in the unconscious. Well, it feels like they're trying to... So, I don't know if I would say... I'm, I'm sure Varun will be jumping in in just two seconds. I don't know if I'd say that it's a conscious structure, but it's almost a uh, an unconsciously conscious structure. When, when you've made some basic assumptions and your unconscious has kind of uh, digested what you fed it, and it's produced out these structures that sort of are the underlying things that you've born yourself in it's it's a bit uh it's a it's it's not in your unconscious these things exist but they're produced by your unconscious inside of the structure that your conscious lives in am i anywhere near or am i just completely nonsense at this point i i think it's that the unconscious may have a level of indifference to oedipus in terms of belief or non-belief but I think you're right that because Oedipus can be reported in that, it is possible for the unconscious to engage with it. But I think um, the trick is that um, there, there's Oedipus at that level, and then there's Oedipus as an apparatus by which that can be sort of um, not only, not necessarily supplanted per se, but supplanted in analysis in terms of understanding and meaning. Um, they say in the previous paragraph that the sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself that it's the sole subject of reproduction so uh as the unconscious is constantly reproducing in a circular form it would be reproducing these abstract uh ideological cultural sort of takes on what oedipus means uh as sort of their base underlying thing the same way that god doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to everyone there's a lot of different sort of interpretations of that that these things are what give us the structure that Edwis lives within i took it as the unconscious reproduces itself and then there's a conscious level of um leveraging oedipus upon that I mean, so I, I think one thing we need to specify when we're talking about how the unconscious works, I mean, are we talking about it in terms of its correct to logistic use, or are we talking about it in terms of its paralogistic use? Because then they start operating in two completely different matters. I, I think we're talking about paralogistic. Uh, I think that's the direction I'm going. Wow, but yeah, I can see actually we're probably directions technically. <laughs> hmm. Let's talk paralogistic for I suppose I'm talking about in terms of just the three syntheses and the unconscious as they've laid it out versus like, I mean, versus I mean, like, I mean like chapter one, right? They lay it out as in, as it's ontological, as it's ontological condition that it's as, as they, as they, they think are stood by syllogism. I mean, they think they're the transcendental conditions or the things that make the uh, possibility of uh, things happening in an environment right it's that our kind of argument and uh, um what they mean in chapter two what they've been doing is they've given us the incorrect use right but by paralogism they mean when when desire is is thought of incorrectly so they've they've un, so they still see desire i mean the psychoanalyst still sees uh the unconscious is the transcendental conditions, but what he does is he doesn't understand which conditions are which. So, for example, he'll take Oedipus as the condition for something which is not actually true in that matter, and that's an incorrect use, for example. 
So I was asking specifically about this paragraph. Are we talking about it in its positive sense or is it in its negative sense? You, how, how do you let, let's 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 assume I, I'm too stupid to answer that question. For me, the, the, the place I'm falling apart where I would love to sort of understand the thread is uh, that second sentence, really. It is Oedipus who produces man in this fashion, who gives a structure to the false movement of infinite progression and regression. I mean, uh, and the rest of the paragraph is effectively just giving examples of that. I think if you look at the word choice more carefully, uh, the false movement and it, it's the... Uh, it's the apparent product, apparent production already. That seems like you know it's the incorrect use of the miraculating machine because it's. I mean, the way they've worded it is so similar, right? Where all production seems to emanate from Oedipus. Right, and the ideologically for culture, and then it goes through a lot of different examples. The psychoanalyst is cop. Psychoanalyst is pious. Uh, the Oedipal Oedipalized, where it's like almost a meta level. Um, of Oedipus being our only savior, of from Oedipus, the ecstasy and the agony. The base structure of the Oedipal apparatus must not be, must not only be generalized in time, so as account for the triangular experiences of the child and his parents, it must be generalized in space to include those triangular relations other than parent-child relations. Yeah, and this might be a, a difference of terms then, but the way I'm reading that, uh, that bit is that um, as the unconscious reproduces itself as it goes through its syntheses and all that, um, that's that's what Deleuze and Guattari think is going on. And then uh, if we accept that premise, right, then uh, we, we look at psychoanalysis and how they engage with the unconscious. And for them, it's a question of, does the unconscious believe in Oedipus? And if so, how does the unconscious produce through Oedipus, right? How can things be Oedipal is kind of the question they ask, which leaves you with an Oedipal answer or a non-Oedipal answer, right? And so that's why I'm saying that Oedipus is really at a more conscious level and at a structural level than it is part of the unconscious. Because we've seen them say the unconscious is indifferent toward the question of Oedipus. It's really more of a sort of conscious problem or a a way of levying an apparatus onto the conscious. And that last quote, uh, the last quote it is from uh, Hochman, um, which they seem to have actually, uh, God, this section. Um, I actually think the next paragraph uh, does color some of this because this paragraph feels like it's mostly examples of uh, the way that Oedipus uh, can be used. The triangle of Oedipus can be applied to a lot of different cultural and ideological situations. Is that a fair reading of it, Rune? Uh, I think that. I'm sorry, wait, Kent, were you saying something? Well, I, I think that's right. I think that's, it's, uh, it's a bunch of examples of how edifice is applied uh, as it, you know, I mean, it's a dominant ideology. That's, re that's, re that's reproducing itself in the culture. 
Yeah, and it it feels like the the one line, and there's so many little moments, but the one line that stuck out to me is, uh, or the techno psychoanalyst, the reform psychoanalyst, obsessed with the triangle, who wraps the splendid gifts of civilization in Oedipus, identity, manic depression, and liberty in an infinite progression. And then, I mean, that's a reference to Hopeman, um, because then they finish with a quote from him. Um, feels like examples. So does anyone want to read the next paragraph? Uh, or have any, uh, have any sure, I'll go, go read that. Um, actually, this paragraph, right? I think, like, you know, if somebody, like a, like a complete beginner, would like ask me, like, if if they wanted to get interest, interested in like losing quadri, like, where should they start? I think this paragraph explains their thought. In, in a really incredible manner. So, like, I would just tell them to read this paragraph. So, I think it, 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 it explains, like, what they're literally on about with this book, in my opinion. So, I'll just go. The unconscious poses no problem of meaning, solely problem, problems of use. The question posed by desire is not what does it mean, but rather how does it work? How do these machines, these desiring machines, work? Yours and mine. With what sort of breakdowns as a part of their functioning? How do they pass from one body to another? How are they attached to the body without organs? What occurs when their mode of operation confronts the social machine's attractable gear? Is Greece the R on the contrary, an infernal machine is made ready? What are the connections? What are the disjunctions or the conjunctions? What is the use made of the syntheses? It represents nothing, but it produces. It means nothing, but it works. Desire makes its entry with the general collapse of the question, what does it mean? No one has been able to pose this problem of language except to the extent that linguistics and logicians have first eliminated meaning. And the greatest force of language was only discovered once at work was viewed as a machine, producing certain effects, amenable to certain use. Malcolm Lowry says of his work, it's anything you want it to be, as so long as it works. It works too, believe me, as I found out, a machinery, but on the condition that machine, machining be nothing other than use. That that is that is that it become a firm principle only if we have a disposable imminent criteria capable of determining the, illeg- the legitimate use, as opposed to the legitimate ones that relate to instead or to a hypothetical meaning and reestablish a kind of transcendence. So, uh, just to break it down, uh, this is literally then explaining what they mean by non-representation, right? About being against representation, representation being something of transcendence. And uh, their ontological understanding of non-representationality as being something completely imminent. And so (laughs) what they're going to say is that, you know, you don't ask something. You don't don't understand what something is based on on, uh, um, this category of meaning or asking what it is. You ask what something can do or what something does or what it has the potential to do, right? I think one easy example to think about this is to think about... um, I don't know, art, for example, right? When you look at a painting, you don't look at the painting. You don't go and say, okay, this is a, I like this painting because it has this much red, it has this much blue, it has uh, this much green, right? The painting actually does something and it has the potential to do something. And that's why, you know, that's why it's impactful. That's why it has effect or affect on you. And, and so, I mean, that's their understanding of desiring production. It works in a very similar manner where these things are just happening based on their connections and what, what are they doing rather than what, 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 what they are or what they mean. I mean, meaning is, again, uh, it's transcendent for them, right? To say that something means something is to short-circuit this whole process of uh, 
these uh, affects and being affected that essentially what's happening is you're creating some transcendent thing like some ontotheological claim of Oedipus. And uh, hence, uh, hence you've uh, short-circuited the system. You've created these these uh, these places of, uh, I mean, you've created representations where desire gets stuck. And, uh, and I guess another word for it is a double bind, for example, where they get stuck in these representations and then being being stuck in them. You've you know you've used the incorrect use. Well, and it's almost uh, them explaining the title of the book, Anti-Oedipus, again. It's not so much that they're against Oedipus, but it's against the concept, uh, the sort of elevated uh, representation that Oedipus has taken on inside of culture, especially when they wrote this book. It's really what they're, I mean, that's their, it's, it is their entire thesis. Their, their, I mean, it's, it's, it's Deleuze's entire thesis and difference and repetition also to a certain degree. So well, the, 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 go ahead. The thing to keep in mind is that this is the influence of pragmatism. Um, and Charles Peirce is the is kind of key figure in pragmatism. But yeah, also, yeah. also so William James important. Yeah, I mean exactly. I I, I think uh, there's a quote by Guattari, right? He says. Uh, if if it if my if my concepts didn't do something actively, they should be thrown away or something like that. And I'm paraphrasing. And I think this is this is again that idea, right? It, I mean, it, you know, some people like to think that Blues and Guadir is just like fluffy uh, fantasy book nonsense, right? But it's it's something very real that's happening everywhere. Another reference that's interesting is there's a guy named Alan Blum who wrote a book called Theorizing. And the purpose of that book was to say that a theory should do what it says. It shouldn't just talk about other things. And, and that's kind of the, the, the difference with representationalism, because representationalism is separated from the thing itself and talking about it. So like if you come up with theories about things, like they're saying Oedipus, uh, the theory of Oedipus of Freud is a theory about the unconscious. It talks about the unconscious in these mythological terms, but then it's, a, it's another thing to actually see how the unconscious works itself, regardless of the representation. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of... Um have you ever run into that thing where you're like, uh, right, if this thing would just work according to my model, everything would be fine, right? In some ways, that's what right. analysis does, right? It learns a model by which to either discuss the the, um, the mental portion of Oedipus uh, or the unconscious or what have you, apart from what's actually, from the materiality of what's going on, or it works on dealing with representations by which to fit it into that model, right? But this could be extended to any model after Oedipus, right? I think that's part of the thing to remain critical of is de-Oedipalizing psychoanalysis doesn't just mean uh, getting rid of Oedipus. It also means not allowing uh, this problem by which a new Oedipus, similar to like uh, how the death of God brings a new man in that, and we have kind of the same problem over and over, Right, de-edipalizing uh, psychoanalysis will mean uh, 
preventing that apparatus from continuing. I don't want to go on for too long because I could. I think this paragraph can be talked about for like two hours itself. But I mean, it, you know, as soon as you ask a question so dogmatic as what something is, you start creating representations, and that's what the psychoanalysis does, right? He plays a hermeneutics game. He has this idea. He has a scheme of Oedipus, and he's playing the hermeneutics game with the representation, right? How can we interpret this meaning in that way? How can we interpret this like that? And um, you know, even in like a thousand plateaus, uh, they, they talk about books, right? Books being about cartography, not about meaning, right? So they, they, they basically extend this ontology to almost everything. And it's, 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 it's one of their, one of their ways of accounting for the infinite flux of life, the, the becoming of, uh, of, uh, objects rather than their stable being, you know, indifference and repetition. It's all about, uh, uh, it's all about valorizing uh, differentials that are constantly becoming rather than things that are just that are stable. I'd like to uh, contrast this to uh, Wittgenstein, because Wittgenstein had this idea that meaning is use, and I, I don't think I don't think what they're talking about here is the same as meaning is use. Uh, I think they're saying that meaning is something different, and it's like an epiphenomena, and that use is what's important, and that's why it's pragmatism. It's not Wittgensteinian philosophy. I mean, one thing I, I think we, we should clarify, though, if we're going to talk about pragmatism, is that, you know, they don't have this sort of fixed conception of a sort of teleology, right? To have another fixed conception of a teleology, that would sort of, that would sort of create, create a whole new representation all over again. And a whole new ontotheological dogma of Oedipus, something similar to Oedipus, and so uh, so they they don't I, I don't th- so I think we need to focus on the idea that you know it's it's not just uh, what it does but what it has the potential to do, and you know that's that's almost what one part of the body without organs also. Also, they're different. They're different in the sense that they are proposing these three different syntheses as the syntheses of the unconscious that are actually uh, being used by the unconscious. And to my to my mind, no one else has done that. Yeah, it is an impressive uh, project trying to lay out an ontology and a, a metaphysics of the unconscious. It's uh, certainly no small feat. Uh, would anyone like to jump to the next paragraph? <laughs> uh, I'll take it, Brooks. All right, go for it. This is a. Uh, what psychoanalyst, uh, correct? Hello? It's uh, analysis termed. Yeah, analysis termed. Thank you. I looked up for too long. Analysis term transcendental is precisely the determination of these criteria imminent to the field of the unconscious insofar as they are opposed to the transcendent exercises of a so-called what-does-it-mean question. Schizoanalysis is at once a transcendental 
and a materialist analysis. It is critical in the sense that it leads the criticism of Oedipus, or leads Oedipus, to the point of its own self-criticism. It sets out to explore transcendental unconscious rather than a metaphysical one, an unconscious that is material rather than ideological, schizophrenic rather than Oedipal, non-figurative rather than imaginary, real rather than symbolic, machinic rather than structural, and unconscious, finally, that is molecular, microphysical, and micrological, rather than molar or gregarious, productive rather than expressive. And it is a matter here of practical principles as directions for the so-called cure. I mean, um, and again, when they say the word uh, transcendental, they're pretty much very affirmative of Kant, right? That it's transcendental and imminent rather than transcendent, right? That the unconscious is, uh, it's, it's the conditions that allow for something. So to ask the question, what does something mean? And to play that hermeneutics game is, uh, you know, it's, it's your backup representation. And uh, they also talk about self-criticism. So I, I think earlier also in the book, they talked about bringing Oedipus to his own author critique. And that's another example that can be seen as very, uh, very in, in vain with the transcendental method, right? That you take something and you ask, you know, what Kant asks is he asks, what are the conditions for reason, right? And then he brings things to its own auto critique. Um, similar thing here, right? What are the conditions for Oedipus to exist? And then they say, okay, so we have a syllogism and we have a paralogism. The paralogism is the incorrect use of the syllogism. It's the incorrect use of the conditions as construed incorrectly by psychoanalysis. And in doing so, they're saying that they want to bring that sort of ideological dogmatism to its own auto-critique. I'd just like to say that what transcendental means is that it's on the inside of consciousness looking out at what's beyond, rather than being beyond. So, so there's this fundamental difference between transcendental and transcendent. But, but transcendental is looking out on what is beyond as it appears in experience. Yeah, and I, I kind of like this too because if if one were to succeed in de-oedipalizing psychoanalysis, one would actually no longer need schizoanalysis. Well, it's my opinion that schizoanalysis is taking things to an extreme so you can see the problems with it. It, it looks like it kind of does a, a sort of tango, which is to say that at one level, it works with the transcendental um, Oedipal or the, psych, uh, the psychoanalysis argument, but then juxtaposes that argument with the materiality of, of it all. And so, like, that juxtaposition seems to um, move toward a kind of uh, a rendering of the the uh, the transcendental argument, or more so the psychoanalytical argument, 
rendering their assumptions and their their argument kind of um, into its own criticism. So as for as to allow the psychoanalysis to take itself off the table. You know, I agree with you, but I think it's a bit more of a foxtrot than a tango. It could be a mambo, you know, <laughs> as long as we can I, I think we got to define our, our terms, our dances. Flamingo. Go ahead, Varun. I'm lost. I have no idea what you guys are about. We're just uh, dancing with one another in, uh, in contrast to the, the Oedipal uh, Billy Idol dancing with himself. Uh, but with that really poor joke, who would like to read the next paragraph? I can read one if my mic is working. Sounds good to me. Can everyone hear 61 okay? I can hear Go for it. Okay, we're at thus we. Yeah. Thus we have already seen how the imminent criteria of desiring production permitted a definition of legitimate uses of syntheses, uses completely distinct from Oedipal uses. And in relation to this desiring production, the Oedipal illegitimate uses seem to us to be multiform, but always to revolve around the same error and to envelop theoretical and practical paralogisms. In the first place, a partial and nonspecific use of the connective syntheses was found to be in opposition to the Oedipal use, itself global and specific. This global specific use was found to have two aspects, parental and conjugal, to which the triangular form of Oedipus and the reproduction of this form corresponded. This use rested upon a paralogism of extrapolation that in fact constituted Oedipus's formal cause, an extrapolation whose illegitimate nature weighed on the whole operation. The extraction of a transcendent complete object from the signifying chain, which, which served as a despotic signifier on which the entire chain thereafter seemed to depend assigning an element of lack to each position of desire, fusing desire to a law, and engendering the illusion that this loosened up and freed the elements of the chain. Yeah, I, I just think we should keep in mind that they're criticizing psychoanalysis, that they're kind of reformulating Marxism, but um, they're real, uh, really what they're talking about is any ideology, um, you know, not these, not just these kind of failed ones in the past. One thing I definitely find interesting is that, you know, what they've struggled throughout the whole book to do so and for a very good reason is they've never been actually able to isolate one synthesis without talking about the other two. Even like even here, it, 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 you know, we're talking about the first synthesis, but at the same time, they've talked about recording. 
and so, so I, I think you really can't, um, you can't, you can, you, you can never isolate one. They're always happening in tandem pretty much. Somebody's asking in the, in the, in the chats, can somebody remind me of the conjugal aspect of the global specific use, right? So specific, uh, global is, it's, uh, in reference to essentially, you know, you, what psychoanalysis, the subjectivity that psychoanalysis construes is that, is that of global persons rather than uh, partial objects, right? And even Melanie Klein, who discovers partial objects, what she misunderstands about them is she considers partial objects in relation to the entire, into the background of the entire body, right? So for example, uh, the mother, right? The mother's breast is considered in background to the entire mother's body and so uh Klein would say that it's the mother's partial object of the breast so what blues and Guattari is going to say is that no if you're going to talk about partial objects you have to deny all those all those um this sort of uh normative aspects of subjectivity and you have to consider them just as these completely autonomous uh objects as as they are and those are what part objects are right so you can never background them to some global person and the global specific use, right? It's that it engenders it to flow in specific ways because of that sort of aspect of creating that whole. I, mean, I, th- I think the best chapter for this is actually the whole and its parts in chapter one. I think yeah, I just I just reread some of that really carefully, and it I think it, it really elucidated a lot for for me. Yeah, I'll say too, for my part, um, it's been interesting reading this because I know there, there's, right, they, Deleuze and Guadalupe have a general critique of understanding desire in terms of lack. And so one thing I've been wondering about is like uh, where that comes from. And it looks like here what they're saying is that when you take uh, a transcendent object out of, the, out of the signifying chain, use that as a despot signifier. Uh, from there, from the standpoint of that signifier, uh, right, that which is not the signifier will lack it. It's kind of like the eye understanding things in terms of sight, right? A hand lacks sight, so it's a lack of desire from the standpoint of the eye. And so, I, it was just an insight I had while we were reading this. Is I can kind of see why they're critical of lack now because it would seem that they. They're worried that anytime someone uses the word lack, they're working from the kind of framework of something Oedipal or of, of, of the despotic signifier, which doesn't have to be Oedipal, but uh, would still lead to a similar problem. So yeah, I mean, of who is lack? Go ahead, Varun. I mean, I, I think if you're going to talk about lack, right, you have to mention Lacan, right? And uh, Lacan is, is, is big for basically understanding of lack as something that exists very much within you right and uh and, and what they're going to be very critical of Lacan in that sense is that it's it's not that um you know you're born with it it's that it's created yeah but uh what i'm saying is it's it's also interpreted through a sort of um privileged object right so like if you take um from a signifying chain one object and use that as a signifier by which to understand other things, then there will be a lack of the signifier in them. And so from that 
point, I see it as a critique of like, uh, you're probably right about what you're saying about Lacan, but I also see it as a critique of like, um, the, the center point by which lack is determined. Do, do you smell that? It smells like representation, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what you, you just described it almost. It's, a, it's actually worth moving on because I think they make some very explicit comments on what you guys are talking about in just a paragraph or two. So would anyone like to read the next section? Maybe not. Maybe it's just. I can go on if no one else wants to read. Uh, where exactly did we leave off? Uh, I had to in run the in, here. in the second place. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll jump there and then uh, uh, 61 after that. Uh, if you would like, we can jump back. Uh, in the second place, an inclusive or non restrictive use of the disjunctive syntheses is in opposition to their Oedipal exclusive restrictive use. This restrictive use, in its turn, has two poles, imaginary and symbolic, since the only choice it permits is between the exclusive symbolic differentiations and the undifferentiated imaginary, correlatively determined by Oedipus. This use demonstrates this time, how Oedipus proceeds. It demonstrates Oedipus's method, a paralogism of the double bind, a double impasse, or in line with the suggestion made by Henry Gabbard, it would be better to translate this as double hold, like a full Nelson hold in wrestling, so as to better describe the treatment forced on the unconscious when it is bound on both ends, leaving it no other choice than to respond to Oedipus, than to respond to Oedipus, to cry Oedipus, in sickness as in health, in its crises as in their outcome, in its resolution as in its problem. In any case, the double bind is not the schizophrenic process. On the contrary, the double bind is Oedipus, insofar as it arrests the motion of the process or forces it to spin around in the void. I, I think if, uh, if, if I think we can go over double bind again, right? I mean, double bind comes from Gregory Bateson, and uh, there's a great, great video I found online of uh, this guy explaining uh, Gregory Bateson's theory of the double bind in relation to the uh, George Orwell film 1984. And so um, I'll just link that because it's, you know, what Bateson is doing, he's finding out, he's trying to look for an, an example of schizophrenia, right? It's very anti-psychiatry and it's very delusiquitarian. So, and I was sort of surprised by that, right? So coming from that tradition of like Artie Lang and anti-psychiatry, what he's doing is that he's not going to say schizophrenia is something inherent, right? Schizophrenia comes from the outside. It's created from, it's created from interactions, and so a double bind is a situation where you're placed in where, you know, I think Brooks explained it pretty brilliant. You're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? It's this complete paradox where um, you've been restricted in a certain manner. And uh, so I think I, I think the best way for us to conceptualize it, if we're going to talk about blues and quadris, is to think about the flows, the way the flows move with respect to a double bind and the way they, those get restricted. Love that. Uh, shall we move on to the next paragraph? 61, if you'd like to oh. still give it a oh. Could you give me like another um, 15 seconds? To, I'm finishing taking this note really quick. Not a problem. Uh, 
I, I'll also refer, we did a, a double bind. We actually did a, a number of sections through, uh, where was that earlier in here? Varun, uh, where was double bind? Because we actually spent a lot of time on uh, time. Uh, used disjunctive, disjunctive synthesis. So yes. that, yeah. Uh, I want to say that's uh, four, uh, section four. Yeah, I, I, section four. Well, we're waiting. I really like this idea that it's a double hold rather than a double bind, like a full Nelson hold in wrestling. I, th I think that's very descriptive. And I, I have to wonder if part of that is, uh, is has to do with the original translations uh, with it, because uh, to bind and to hold are fairly synonymous in English. And so I've always... Like the the comment here when they say uh, it's a double hold like a full Nelson, I've always assumed and understood a double bind is the same thing that it places a person in, in an immovable position that is unable to go both directions. The the classic example of the father, Salon Deleuze uses all the time. Right, but what they're suggesting yeah. is that the two people wrestling are holding each other, right? Rather than um, it being rather than it being imposed from the outside. Um, well, it's, it's a, I think, I think they're, they use the term full Nelson and uh, full Nelson, uh, is, is an interesting use. Um, it's kind of a very extreme wrestling move that very much holds a person in position. It's, uh, very difficult to get out of it. Is it holding um, them at two points though? I think that's the, if you know the, the structure of the yeah, actual no, wrestling it, move. It is. It, it is. Um, I, I, did, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to understand if it doesn't feel like that's quite as necessary. Because again, a, a double bind is being held in two places. It's just double bind. It's two binds. It always felt like I always kind of took it that way. Maybe it was uh, presumptuous of me. If this helps, one way I'm kind of reading this is in light of what we were saying about. Uh, the conscious versus the unconscious and how the Oedipal plays into that as a structure. It looks like at one level there's like, right, so desiring production is occurring and the inscription process is occurring. It looks to me like a, at a basic level what they're saying is like when the Oedipal structure, structure is mobilized, then um, there's an attempt to bind the unconscious to inscribe in that manner, just as there's a conscious attempt to... Um, to understand oneself in, in that manner uh, or to inscribe themselves in such a way. Okay. Hmm. Okay, well, I'll go on, I suppose. Yes, yes, please. Sorry. Sorry to go on. Oh, no problem. Um, the, more, the more analysis, the better. I'm still figuring this stuff out, but all right. In the third place, a nomadic and polyvocal use of the conjunctive syntheses is opposed to the segregative and biunivocal use made of them. There again, this biunivocal use, illegitimate from the point of view of the unconscious itself, has what appear to be two moments. First, a moment that is racist, nationalistic, religious, etc., and that by means of the segregation constitutes an aggregate of departure that is always presupposed by Oedipus, even if in a totally implicit fashion. Next, a familial moment that constitutes the aggregate of destination by means of an application. 
Once the third paralogism, the paralogism of application, which fixes the precondition for Oedipus by establishing a set of bi-univocal relations between the determinations of the social field and the familial determinations, thereby making possible and inevitable the reduction of libidinal investments to the eternal daddy-mommy. We still have not exhausted all the paralogisms that lead the practice of the practice of the cure in the direction of a frenzied Oedipalization, a betrayal of desire, the unconscious closeted in a day nursery, a narcissistic machine for arrogant and mouthy little egos, a perpetual absorption of capitalist surplus value, flows of words against flows of money, the interminable story psychoanalysis. I mean, one thing I'd just like to mention is this, you know, it, it, I think this uh, this chapter also shows their influence from cybernetics come out so clearly, right? Deleuze also has that great uh, that great essay called uh, "The Control Societies," where he's actually deriving the term "control" from uh, Norbert Wiener. But you know, the reason why these flows of desire is are so easily easily manipulatable, right? They can be put into these double binds. They can be changed. Is that they're so connected? Right. One of the things is they're so connected is that, you know, is is they're so connected, they can be so influential, but that can have like a positive and a negative. Right. They can be both parent. They can become paranoiac and schizophrenic because they're so connected in so many different ways. Yeah, and so um, I think that made sense, right? Because if you if you affect the recording process, you're affecting the other two processes, and you could be affecting what comes after that. Since that, by affecting the recording process, you're also affecting the body by organs, right? So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense for him. Um, one thing that I wanted to comment on was um, I'm still kind of thinking through this. But it looks like the problem with the third synthesis is this bi-univocal use, which, if I'm understanding this correctly, it sounds like there's this um, this sort of um, I think it's called a chirality. There's this chirality between um, what is going on in terms of subjectivity, and then. Uh, sort of the way that you're supposed to understand that subjectivity or the, the right, uh, what is going on in terms of the, the residue from production that uh, comes with consumption and the way you're supposed to understand that. Is that uh, about right? Uh, yeah, sorry. I kind of uh, zoomed off a little bit towards the end, but yeah, I, I think you are. But I, I'm, not, I'm not super sure. I mean, I think I'm going to have to reread that part about the conjunctive synthesis a bit more, actually. Do, do you know what it's meant by, by univocal? It's always kind of confusing. I, that's what I'm kind of trying to uh, Google's chirality. That's what I mean by I, I like the word chirality. It's like if, it sounds like when something is by univocal, you're trying to take two things that are different and make them univocal despite their... Um, they're different contexts. And so like uh, the reason I'm using chirality there is like if you have a picture of a duck and you flip the picture of the duck and try to superimpose them on one another, it's not going to be symmetrical. 
So even though they're on top of each other, it's an asymmetric um, picture. And so I think that's what they're talking about in terms of biunivocality and the unconscious not really working in that manner because like uh, if I remember correctly they were talking about the problem of like uh, the, the getting caught up in trying to be a race and trying to be a race trying to be a nation trying to conserve yourself into something that you're moving through as opposed to understand that you're moving through it and that you can just allow yourself to keep going right which is actually kind of a, a really nice sentiment I'm I'm still trying to figure out the the biunivocal relation, actually. Um. I I think it's like when you take something from the social field, like a father, and then you take the Oedipal understanding of the father, and you try to make them univocal, despite them being different. See what confuses me is that. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, usually it's talked uh, talked about something being univocal, which means all said in the you know all these different things mean the same thing when you when you're talking about them, even different in their specific. And then there's there's equivocal, which means the two things are the same. And so it could be that what you say is true that uh, by univocal means that the two things are different, but still spoken about in the same way. But I've never seen a definition of bi-univocal in here. They just use the term, and I don't know what it means. Yeah, I take it to mean univocal is you and me saying we're going to understand something as meaningless, right? We're going to agree that it, that it's limited to this as opposed to when something's equivocal, and therefore there's room for variation. So, like... I see that as usually conferring to how we're going to understand a word um, by which other words can sort of be uh, connected. But, uh, right, if so if univocal is referring to how we're going to understand one word, I see biunivocal bi as referring to like uh, sort of uh, semiotically, right? There's the father in the social field. There's the father in psychoanalysis. And we're going to try, uh, and I'm using the word chirality because I think that's how it results. We're going to try and make these two things the same. Or there's what you're experiencing. Here's the Oedipal understanding. We're going to try and make these things the same so as to be talking about the same thing. But a kind of chirality seems to result from that. Well. Chirality means left hand, right hand. I think that uh, that um, biunivocal is, it seems to be from what I'm looking at in mathematical resources. It's supposed to indicate a kind of isomorphism um, categorically. At least that's the what I can either that or a monomorphism. But it seems more so to be related to an isomorphism. Yeah, can. Put your left hand over your right hand and you'll see what I mean. No, no, I understand. It, it, chirality is left hand, right hand, but I, I haven't seen them use that term with biunivocal, so I, I just don't know whether that interpretation. Uh, gotcha. 
So it's like if you twist one of your hands, you can get them to land on top of each other perfectly. But if you keep them in the same position, they will never land on top of each other perfectly. Okay. You know, this came up before, and I just like to mention it because it's an interesting fact that um, the uh, in the fourth dimension, uh, you can turn the left into the right by rotating something through the fourth dimension. And that's like turning a glove inside out. So, so I mean, you know, chirality is a really interesting fact of uh, existence because it's it's independent of frames of reference. That's one of the points Kant makes in his arguments in the Critique of Pure Reason is the the independence of chirality of frames of reference. But um, so you know, chirality has all these interesting aspects. But uh, Biunivocal, because he says segregative and biunivocal. I, I, I think it might just mean something like um, that. Uh, what it reminds me of is 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 nihilistic opposite, where you have two things that are seem to be different, but but actually you discover that they're actually the same thing. And so uh, that's another proposed. Uh, interpretation of what biunivocal means, because they're contrasting it to poly- polyvocal you and nomadic you. If it yeah, helps I, to I, put a picture in the chat of what I'm thinking about. Go ahead, 61. I was going to say, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of settled with the, the set theoretic uh, definition, so to speak. It seems like it, it's, it's almost a uh, a reciproc a um a a reciprocation, I guess you might say, um, where. Uh, but I don't I don't I don't think I mean I shouldn't go into like the set theoretical details here I suppose, but it definitely makes sense set theoretically in the context that he's using it. And with that, do we have a volunteer to keep reading? We're coming to the end of our time, and we we're very close to making it through. Why don't you do it, Jack? I would love to. The three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error, an idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious. And it is futile to interpret these notions in terms of a a combinative apparatus, une combinatoire, that mates of lack an empty position and no longer a deprivation, that turns the law into a rule of the game and no longer a commandment, and the signifier into a distribute into a distributor and no longer a meaning. For these notions cannot be prevented from dragging their theological cortege behind, insufficiency of being, guilt, and signification. Structural interpretation challenges all beliefs, rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only functions, defines the prohibition and transgression as structural operations. But what water will cleanse these concepts of their background, their previous existences, religiosity? Scientific knowledge is non-belief, is truly the last refuge of belief, and as Nietzsche put it, there never was but one psychology, that of the priest.
Uh, I liked their very quick takedown of the uh, sort of idealism that exists around Desire, Lacklaw, and Signifier. It makes Lack an empty position and no longer deprivation, just emptiness, not deprivation. Turns Law into uh, rules rather than commandments. Uh, and uh, signifier into a distributor and no longer meaning. I really like uh, it's it's such a quick set of lines, but I think uh, just Varun, you brought up a little bit earlier that this may be a little bit about representation overall. Uh, I think this may may agree with you because uh, one way I'm understanding Oedipus is as some sort of transcendent rep- representation that does not that you know define imminence in a certain manner and uh, like so, so defines the prohibition and stru- transgressions of, of the structural operations right it, it's pretty clear like in the in the when they start talking about the first synthesis in this chapter I mean the first incorrect paralogism of the syntheses in this chapter one of the th- one of the things that you know sort of fucks up the flows to a certain degree is uh, is the prohibition of incest for them right and it's creating all these false it's because of that representation the flows have been construed differently and when the flows get through differently right they analyze the historical conditions the historical conditions uh, uh correlates with the, the prohibition of incest and then they start looking at psychoanalysis being a product of these historical conditions coming out from when the flows were messed up by the, that prohibition of representation. And uh, then you get, you get the analyst being able to say, Oh yeah, you want to fuck your mother. And you know, you really do want to fuck your mother. It's, 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 it's ingrained in, in, it's very much real. Well, they get, they get, they get into that, the line, a structural interpretation challenges all beliefs, rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only functions, defines the prohibition and the transgression as structural operations. Uh, the, the idea that uh, you have these, these prohibitions, these things that exist that you've taken on to be so very important, uh, it's an idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious. Uh, the interpretation and representation of these things are ultimately not what they seem to be. So this is this is the reason <clears throat> that they're called uh, post-structuralists, and they're they're basically supporting Derrida's position about structuralism that it doesn't ultimately it doesn't hold together. I wouldn't I wouldn't go so much into Derrida though personally because you know you know you have difference and you have difference in itself, but. I, uh, I don't. I, I, I don't know how. I don't, I don't think they correlate exactly very well. If you want to look at it in a very broad idea, I think, yeah, they have a similar sense of sort of taking down the signified, right? The trans, the, the, the transcendent signified. They're both sort of taking that down, but I, I don't. I think it's still a bit vague to bring in Derrida just yet. So I mean, it, at least my reading that along this time, I'm noticing all kinds of parallels, with Derrida. I think they're absorbing Derrida and basically supporting the position. Well, I actually, um, we have four paragraphs left to go. I'm going to bust through through the next one. Uh, and I mean, they, 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 they start touching on a lot more Derrida uh, very quickly here. Um, from the moment lack is reintroduced into desire, all of desiring production is crushed reduced to being no more than the production of fantasy 
But the sign does not produce fantasies. It is a production of the real and a position of desire within reality. From the moment desire is welded again to the law, we needn't point out what is known since time began. That there is no desire without law. The internal operation of eternal repression recommences. The operation that closes around the unconscious, the circle of prohibition and transgression, white mass and black mass. But the sign of desire is never a sign of the law. It is a sign of strength, puissance. And who would dare use the term law for the fact that desire situates and develops its strength and that wherever it is, it causes flows to move and substances to be intersected? I am careful not to speak of chemical laws. The word has a moral aftertaste. From the moment desire is made to depend on the signifier, it is put back under the yoke of a despotism whose effect is castration. There where one recognizes the stroke of the signifier itself, but the sign of desire is never signifying. It exists in the thousands of productive breaks flows that never allow themselves to be signified within the unary stroke of castration. It is always a point sign of many dimensions, polyvocity as the basis for a punctual semiology. <clears throat> the review session tomorrow is going to be great. Because um, I'm going to need time to digest so much of this in order to make... Wait, any... uh, so, so, Brooks, right? I was yes. going to ask, because you're, you're probably... I've, I've never actually read Lacan, any of his actual... Mm -hmm. I've never read Lacan for Lacan. I've just read Lacan from like from like outside sources. But the unary right. trait that, that that has something to do with the unconscious being structured like a language, or the unconscious being the discourse of the other, right? And because 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 where the unconscious talks about you know the process of signification, the signifier change that chain that gets built up, right? It it almost and and I. And I really emphasize that almost it almost works similar to the body without organs we're on the body without organs there there's a signifying there's a code of a signifying chain that's being built up except it's much more free than compared to lacan which was just based on language right you could they say you can have like your mother's hair or something like that on it um yes so uh and again uh these are this is one of the really more difficult concepts Lacan I, I've wrestled with as I've read through, and so I'm probably not going to speak of it very much correctly. But the unary trait is uh, uh, foundational to all semiotics. It's the thing, the difference, the beginning of the semiotic moment uh, that supports this symbolic identification of things. Um, so it's uh, it, it comes from. Uh, uh, Saussure, uh, I'm not pronouncing that probably correctly, um, uh, to read from uh, nosubject.com, which is like the best uh, resource for the con. Uh, Ferdinand de Saussure defined the signifier negatively. It is not the same, but it is different from the other signifiers in a given structure. This implies that a signifier is also different from itself. This pure difference characterizes the unary trait. As an example of the first primitive indication of the existence of the signifier, Lacan referred to a prehistoric hunter carving notches into a piece of bone. One notch signifies each kill. There's no reference to the different types of prey or the particular events of each hunt. 
Each animal killed counts as one, and that is the only aspect of the hunt marked by the trait. This is the Unarite trait at a basic level. Uh, I'll, I'll link to this. It's a great resource. It looks like there's a good um, nosubject.com entry on Unary Trait too, if you want a bunch of other info. Yeah, that's, that's what I just linked to. It's oh, okay. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, nosubject.com. If you have any any of your Lacan questions, they can answer everything. I mean, like one way I'm understanding it is it, it's, it's the point where the su subject... Uh, I think he has that story of, uh, have you read Lacan's reading of Little Hans? No, I have not. Um, so, like, this is, like, probably, like, super, super vague. But uh, the thing is that Lacan talks about, you know, uh, Little Hans's problems stemming from the fact that he's entering into the regime of signification. And that has to do with the unary trait. But I'm not sure how correct my reading is. Uh, it's 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 probably correct. It's one of those things. Um, there there are pieces of Lacan that start getting strange because it he started to do this, where he started to try to draw his things out inside of two D space and create diagrams of how things interact. And the unary trait is so necessary and part of everything that he did that quite often. And I never understood any most almost any of his drawings. I think yes, <laughs> they never helped me understand a damn thing. Yeah, um, but I, I think. I think a key word is polyvocal that we have over here because I think that's going to be very different than Lacan's uh, uh, signifying chain. When when the fact that it's polyvocal, that means that you know what these uh, signifiers that signify absolutely nothing according to them and are registered on the body without organs. You know they register from and when they talk about in, in chapter one, section five, they say it's the detachments, right? It's the it's the second type of detachment. Or the second type of disjunction that occurs when there's when the machines break down, and what's registered is the sign remembrance, right? It's almost like memory, and uh, what that sign what that sign is, it's it's polyvocal, and uh, it differs in intensity, right? So you start at zero, the body with the feet. Let's say that the full body without organs is the full zero, and uh, by by differing with the signs, you keep going up into greater intensity. And so I think what we need to emphasize with the keyword polyvocal here is that essentially that the connections can be are, are much are not as gospel as Lacan would have them. I think that's fair. I, I, I want to jump through. We've got three paragraphs left in like 10 minutes. Um, I want to make sure we can get through everything. Um, it is said that the unconscious is dark and somber. Reich and Marquis are often reproached for their Rousseauism, their naturalism, a conception of the unconscious that is thought to be too idyllic. But doesn't one indeed lend to the unconscious horrors that could only be those of consciousness and of a belief too sure of itself? Would it be an exaggeration to say that in the unconscious there is necessarily less cruelty and terror, and of a different type? than in the consciousness of an heir, a soldier, or a chief of state. The unconscious has its horrors, but they are not anthropomorphic. It is not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters, but vigilant and insomniac rationality. The unconscious is Rousseauistic, being man-nature. And how much malice and ruse are there in Rousseau? Transgression, guilt, trans castration. Are these determinations of the unconscious, or... Is this the way a priest sees things? 
Doubtless there were many other forces besides psychoanalysis for oedipalizing the unconscious, re rendering it guilty, castrating it. But psychoanalysis reinforces the movement. It invents the last priest. Oedipal analysis imposes a transcendent use on all the synthesis of the unconscious, ensuring their conversion. Um, this is the Rousseau section, yes. This, I, I don't think I could say Rousseauism enough times, uh, and now I've said it more than I've said it my entire life. Um, I'm actually, no, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I think this is kind of interesting, as they, they end the last section by, um, right, so they've, they've talked about the, the despotism of the sign and that, what happens when you try to um, to work with that kind of thing? I'm going to go kind of quick in this for the sake of time. And so right at the end of uh, that section by saying uh, that instead of having uh, the despot signifier, it would be better to have the point sign of many dimensions. Right, that's the polyvocality that we were talking about. And so what I think is kind of interesting here with, with the comparison of Rousseau and that, and where they write um, about the unconscious and the conscious, it kind of lends itself to also being understood as how things can get um, territorialized, right? Uh, that is to say, like, when they write, uh, it would have been an exaggeration to say that in the unconscious there is necessarily less cruelty and terror and of a different type than in the consciousness of an heir, soldier, or chief of state. Uh, the unconscious has its horrors, but they are not anthropomorphic. It is not the slumber of reason that engenders uh, monsters, but vigilant and insomniac rationality. Uh, so the way, to, to really make it short, there's a way that rationality uses a, a signifier to impose um, a certain fear and, and uh, a certain um, signification on the unconscious that's going on here that I think is like Rousseau in the sense of a contractuality. I think with that, we should move on, though, because I think... Um, they state their thesis very clearly here. I mean, the thesis of their entire book. Uh, the practical problem with schizoanalysis is then to ensure that the contrasting reversion, restoring synthesis of the unconscious to their imminent use, right? So they want to go back to the correct syllogism of the unconscious being productive rather than all the representations it's been trapped in through the paralogisms constructed by psychoanalysis. De-edipalizing, undoing the daddy-mommy spider web, undoing the beliefs so as to attain the production of desiring machines and to reach the level of economic and social investments where the militant analysis comes into play. Right, you know, again, that's sort of the, uh, it, it's two parts, right? It's the anti-psychiatry and sort of that Marxist background where you have to consider the historical conditions of, you know, because flows are not just, I mean, the way desiring production occurs is that, uh, desiring production also but they both are the same thing because desiring productions build up social production i think they have that great quote about hitler hitler sexually arousing the people who voted for him and this um social nothing is accomplished as long as machines are not touched upon this implies interventions that are in fact very concrete in place of the benevolent pseudo neutrality of the oedipal analysis who wants to understand only mommy and daddy we must substitute a malevolent and openly malevolent activity your oedipus is a fucking drag 
kept it up. Analysis will be stopped or else we'll apply shock treatment to you. Stop saying daddy, mommy. Of course, Hamlet lives in you as whether lives in you and Oedipus too and anything you want. But you grow uterine arms and legs, uterine lips, uterine mustache. In tracing back the memory to your debts, your ego becomes a short mineral theorem, which constantly proves the futility of the living. Were you born Hamlet or did you rather create the type in yourself? That's a good line with regards to what they've been saying. It's such a good line. It's such a good line. (laughs) Did you create it, right? Well, you know, Oedipus. (laughs) Whether this be or not, whether this be so or not, what seems infinitely more important is why revert the myth? If myth is given up, little joy, a little discovery is restored to psychoanalysis, for it has become very dismal, very sad, quite interminable. With everything decided in advance, will it be restored that the schizo is not joyous either? But doesn't his sadness come from the fact that he can no longer bear the forces of Oedipalization and Hamletization that hem in all sides? Better to flee to the body without organs and hide out there, closing himself up in it. Sounds paranoiac, right? The paranoiac paranoiac machine that where they, you know, this is, I think this is such a great line because it just, you know, uh, some of you know, I, I, I had a lot of trouble when I was reading that chapter in the body without organs. And they specifically talked about the param- paranoiac machine, right? And I was like, what the hell is going on, right? Why is why is they, why are they trying to break in? I think it's pretty clear, right? Better to flee into the body without organs than to hide and close themselves up. They're trying to break in, and the breaking of the repulsing characterizes the paranoiac machine, right? The paranoiac machine closes itself up. And uh, that's what's happening here. I think this is a really great example that they've given us. If we made a psychoanalysis enter the domains of the productive unconscious, he would... Oh, sorry, I forgot to read one line. You have pushed a process into a goal, right? That sort of teleological thing. It's it's anti-teleological, right? If we made a psychoanalysis enter into the domains of the productive unconscious, he would feel as out of place with his theater as an actress from the comedian Francois in a factory, a priest from the Middle Ages on an assembly. What takes place in this factory, what this process, its spasms, its glories, its labors, and its joys still remain unknown. It's a, this is them planting a flag in the ground. I mean, it's, it's, it's finally some things that are very clear here, but the line, uh, were you born Hamlet or did you not rather create the type in yourself is such a clear statement of their earlier concept of the, uh, the unconscious that produces certain circles or however they phrased it that made my brain uh, have a stroke but the line uh, did you not rather create the type in yourself whatever this be so or not what seems infinitely more important is why resort to myth this is this is basically their thesis statement in two paragraphs which is great finally it's about time I'd just like to mention the line was missing, I believe. Uh, we must set up units of production, plug in desiring machines, what takes place in this factory, what this process is, its spasms, its glories, its labors, its joys still remain at This was, uh, I really liked uh, how you read that Varun at the very end there, with a few notes in there. Because it, the other line in here, there's so many just great little moments. And the review session, please join us tomorrow, same time, two hours. We do the same thing, but we open it up to everyone, and everyone can ask questions, make comments. Uh, please join us uh, tomorrow for that. Um, but uh, 
that that the if myth is given up, a little joy, a little discovery is restored to psychoanalysis. It feels like also that that's uh, have, and I I know I'm 